Hello, and welcome to the Community Mennonite Church Podcast. Today, we have a sermon by Pastor Jason Gerlach. Imagine that the stained glass windows on either side of you were a bit more translucent. So much so that from your seats you could see neighboring homes, automobile traffic, and whatever cloud formations there are at present. Sure, if this were the case, if the windows on either side of us were more translucent, Some of you may have more difficulty resisting the temptation to daydream about presidential campaigns, lunch locations, or that once again, the New England Patriots made it to the Super Bowl. (laughs) But stay with me. Let's say that all of a sudden, While you were looking out the windows, something remarkable happened. It could be that an animal sauntered by, for instance, a fox, or some form of celebrity, or that storm clouds emerged, or that there's a traffic incident involving numerous vehicles. What would happen next, I assume, is that you'd begin talking with one another about what you'd just witnessed. Maybe you'd whisper to a neighbor, or maybe you'd call out. And there may be some details that all of us would hold in common. But there'd be some other things that some would claim they had seen while others disagreed. The points of commonality would be sharpened and shaped by each person's proximity to the windows, correct? Any comments would be mainly about articulating one's perspective to the incident. But if a person's view was obstructed, or their level of interest wavered, or they weren't willing to articulate their vantage point for the benefit of others, then those people who had remained silent may ultimately defer to those around them about what had happened. Similarly, Let's explore things a bit further. Take, for instance, this vintage CMC window I found recently up in the attic. Do you notice any activity behind it? What would you say is happening behind the window? Do you see movement? Can you identify with any certainty what is going on? And if you talk to somebody beside you, would you disagree? Or would you agree what you had witnessed on what is happening behind the window? 
Now let's imagine that while you're talking to one another, nodding in agreement or verbally sharing disagreements, that all of a sudden Kent Davis Sensnig stood up and loudly claimed, the movement behind the window, that was a bird flying. And that's final. There's a good chance no one would counter Kent's definitive statement. <laughs> and so over time, people would come to believe that they truly had seen a bird. A last word, something that's claimed to be final. There are appropriate times when someone's word or wor words should be definitive. Declarative statements can be very helpful. Do not cross the street without the teacher. Do not take something that's not yours. Don't cough on someone else. Do not double dip that chip. <laughs> but a last word. When studying scripture or practicing biblical hermeneutics seems like a less than helpful approach. Dr. Brian K. Blunt, New Testament scholar and president of Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, welcomed me to share with him some of my ideas about Mark 5, 1 through 20, while I was writing my thesis in the spring of 2017. Together we discussed Jesus' interaction with the Gerizim demoniac. I shared with him how it's become a fundamental passage of scripture for me. Dr. Blunt guided me toward the work of one of his colleagues, and then he encouraged me to reread this passage often throughout my life. Because, he claimed, biblical, biblical texts are living documents, and in a year or two, or possibly longer, the passage Mark 5, 1 through 20 could take on new and even more life-giving meanings for me. Years prior to my conversation with Dr. Blunt, he wrote the final chapter in a book about biblical interpretation. In it, he articulated some of the same things he shared with me that day when we met together in person. In that chapter, he stated, we know that even the inspired biblical authors, when they applied God's prophetic and incarnate word to their very human situations, allowed those situations to influence how they heard God and therefore how they talked to each other. I've seen this play out in my own study of scripture. Clearly Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source for their words, but felt that the Spirit of God was still on the move, so much so that they felt they should change Mark's words in ways that were applicable to their context and people, and indeed changed Mark's gospel itself. So they added the birth narratives, where there were none, and resurrection stories that Mark himself did not deploy. When comparing Matthew to Mark, we can see that Matthew adjusted the text for specific purposes. For example, in Matthew's version of the storm at the sea, Jesus' words about the disciples' complete lack of faith is clearly less harsh. Why? 
because for Matthew's audience, the disciples played a more important role in the life of community of faith, and it just wouldn't do for them to have appeared as ignorant in Matthew's telling of the story as in Mark's. We can see similar things in play in Paul's works on at least two occasions. In 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 15, Paul articulates that Jesus' words disallow divorce. But then Paul does something radical. He explains that if a situation arises that is different from the one Jesus envisioned, it warrants fresh thought. Paul himself explored a situation of that time wherein there were concerns about what to do if a pagan is married to a believer and threatens to pull that believer from his or her faith. Paul's response? Well, he articulated that in that situation, it was permissible for there to be a divorce and for the pagan partner to go on his or her way. Paul also radically reformed long-held thinking when he said in Galatians 3.28 that there is no longer Jew nor Greek, there is no longer slave nor free, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. A community's theology of, of justification by faith led to a social reality where slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, lived on an equal plane. That social reality would have been radically countercultural indeed during Paul's time. Paul's understanding of God's action in Christ led him to an incredibly liberating, boundary-breaking, countercultural conclusion that even the categories that God established in the act of creation have now been superseded. In the one body of Christ, all secular categories were transcended. Even the biblical words about human creation in the earliest chapters of Genesis are not the last words for human living, according to Paul. Yet in 2019, Paul's radical reworking in Galatians 3:28 might feel dated or limited or binary. What is clear is that the first Christians strived after God's kingdom through prayer and pedagogical work in their own context. So should we. The following story is one Dr. Blunt has shared numerous times in writing and in speech, and it complexifies using any example of the Apostle Paul. Listen. The African-American slaves in the United States were a community that was as faithful to the powerful message of Jesus Christ in their lives as any community in history. In spite of what they endured, what they lost, how often they were brutalized or killed, their songs, their sermons, their narratives and stories are a testimony to their faith in God's powerful presence in their lives. And even though the laws of the land, the same laws many biblical texts suggested they should blindly obey, made it illegal for them to learn to read, somehow they learned the biblical stories and internalized them. God's story 
became their story. But they realized that human beings interpreted those stories and put God's holy word into their own contextually influenced human words. So when slave owners talked about the Bible saying that slaves ought to obey their masters, the slaves resisted not just the slave owners, but the biblical words and the biblical authors themselves. To emphasize this form of resistance, Dr. Blunt tells the story of the grandmother of a close friend. One day, Howard Thurman's grandmother said to him, my regular chore was to do all the reading for my own grandmother. She could neither read nor write. With a feeling of great termidity, I asked her one day why it was that she would not let me read any of, Paul, of Paul's letters, the Pauline letters. What she told me, I shall never forget. During the days of slavery, she said, the master's minister would occasionally hold services for the slaves, and the white minister used as his text something from Paul. At least three or four times a year, he used a text which said, slaves be obedient to them that are your masters, as unto Christ. Then he would go on to show how if we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. I promised my maker that if I ever learned to read, and if freedom ever came, I would not read that part of the Bible. Instinctively, this woman knew the importance of context and biblical interpretation so that Christ's message remained alive. She knew that there's no final or last word. Over these past two weeks, pastors Jennifer and Dana have preached on Luke 12, 29 through 32. Both Jennifer and Dana focused part of their sermon on Luke's claim to not be worried, to not become afraid. Pastor Jennifer encouraged us to recognize that Jesus spoke these words, do not worry, do not be afraid, to his disciples amidst the time of his own peril. And Pastor Dana encouraged us to recognize that this is God's world, and we have no right to control others nor claim a secure future. I want to say something, too, about Jesus' words focused on fear and worry. But please don't feel that I have the last word on this passage. I find it interesting that this command, do not be afraid, is actually the most frequent command in the Bible. We can find it whenever God approaches to make or restate covenant partnership with God's people. For instance, Abraham, Moses, Israel, David. And when God's promise-keeping is, is being brought to fruition, for instance, Zechariah and Mary. This command serves as God's covenant calling card. It's God's way of saying, do not be afraid, for though I ask you to give up all your self-made securities and to follow me, I will be with you to the end. I promise. This command and its accompanying promise are central to our story 
as God's followers from beginning to end. Now remember that Luke 12, 29 through 32 is our 2019 theme verse. We will live with this verse for 11 more months. It will be with us all year. So the command, do not be afraid, isn't one that you'll hear for the first few weeks in January and February, but then forget about in May or in October. It's not a one-time warning, and our reflections on the 2019 theme verse will not only be contained to this first worship series of the year, worship series of the year, nor are we saying that this passage is comfort only for right now. Throughout 2019, these verses will shape us. They'll feel alive. They'll affect our decision-making and direct where we might place our efforts or what we might work toward for God's kingdom, as well as how strenuously we'll strive for God's kingdom. We're going to return to it and reread it numerous times throughout the year. But for that to be the case, we'll have to view these verses as part of a living document and not a last word. Before I conclude, I want to develop one more aspect of this passage. It's this phrase, little flock. By selecting it, Jesus identified his followers as sheep, or possibly as a flock of geese, although I'm not sure about that. Come to think of it, it definitely could have been rams before any kind of a goat. If you didn't get that, it was a terrible Super Bowl reference. But of greater significance here is that Jesus identified himself as a shepherd. The Gospels are sprinkled with the image of Jesus as the shepherd who guides his flock. It's often a serene and tranquil image. Now remember what Pastor Jennifer shared two weeks ago, that Jesus said the words of our 2019 theme verse amidst the time of his own anticipated peril. I have often wondered why Jesus does not speak more directly about the rulers of his time, about Herod, Pilate, or Caesar. Perhaps the gospel writers were limited in what they could actually write because such political, critical writing would be seen as submissive, subversive, and outlawed. Perhaps Jesus focused solely on the demonic system of oppression rather than the individuals who maintained them. The only time that Jesus referred to Herod in the Gospels comes in the very next chapter after the one that contains our theme verse. In Luke 13, the Pharisees tell Jesus that Herod wanted to kill him. And Jesus replied, go and tell that fox, listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will finish my work. Continuing the imagery of the good shepherd, the sheep, the hirelings, and the peaceful pasture, amidst all the ways that this imagery is held together, Jesus speaks of Herod as that fox, as the one who comes to destroy the flock. While steadfastly resisting the ruling authorities and their imperial reign of violence, 
Jesus speaks of the presence of Herod and forces similar to him as an inevitable reality in the world. Somewhere out there lurks a pack of ravenous foxes, wolves, thieves, and robbers, and their purpose is to steal, slaughter, and destroy. Thus, we cannot enjoy the pasture of life, the Gospels warn. Rather, we must protect one another from that which tries to destroy us, be it Herod or today's rulers who act similarly, be it biblical interpretation that is counter to Christ's life and example, or even erroneous claims about the last word. Christ's followers should not create elaborate justifications for how we already live our own lives. Instead, we should strive after God's kingdom throughout the entirety of it. Sure, a text such as Luke 12, 29 through 32 can free us from economic anxieties that weigh on us presently. But it also makes a clear claim that the kingdom impinges upon the present in such a way that we are freed to act with a generosity that welcomes God's future. Since we're always changing and our contexts are always changing, the words that interpret the whisper of God's spirit in our time must necessarily be changing as well. Making the biblical words the last words turns them into literary artifacts. Over time, any church working with such a word becomes fossilized into its past. It becomes an archaeological dig rather than a living faith community that celebrates seeing God say and do new things. Together, in this year 2019, let us assess how as Christ followers we are responding to the call to God's people to transition now into the kingdom that is coming. It is an orientation that, is set, that will set us toward following a deeper rhythm than the clamor of our age. So let us devote serious energy into noticing the ways that God's kingdom is breaking into the world. What examples have you witnessed this first month? Already this year, I've heard a child at our kids' club name that his family's journey from El Salvador to Harrisonburg felt eerily similar to that of the long journey of the Magi. I've also learned of 40 persons serving at Rockingham Harrisonburg Regional Jail for their sentences who have requested a form of catechism class which would lead to baptism by Chaplain Jason Wagner. What might we notice throughout the rest of this year? The first Christians strived after God's kingdom in their context. So should we. Thank you for listening to the Community Mennonite Church podcast. Our theme music is a setting of John Wesley's text, Jesus, I Believe You're Near, composed by Matt Carlson. Jeremy Nafziger arranged it for strings. 
To learn more about our congregation or to plan a visit, please check out our website at cmcva.org.